Good moment, baseball fans. Welcome to the In the Box podcast. I'm your host, Michael Gamble. On today's episode, we'll be diving into the top headlines in baseball, including Scott Rowland's election to the Hall of Fame, updates on umpire retirements and promotions, and we'll also take a look at the World Baseball Classic and roster moves made by Japan, Cuba, and the USA. So grab your peanuts and your cracker jacks and let's play ball. folks any conversation opening this show has to start with the hall of fame scott roland's a hall of famer folks no god no god please no 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 we've decided to elect scott roland as its newest member along with fred mcgriff i'm not going to really touch on fred mcgriff too much today we're going to focus on scott roland and my pushback for his election to the Hall of Fame. Now, Scott Rowland did have a lengthy and fruitful career in which he did rack up some impressive and outstanding statistics and accomplishments. Between the years of 1996 and 2012, Rowland played for the Phillies, the Cardinals, the Reds, and the Blue Jays, where he amassed eight gold gloves, which ties him for third most by a third baseman in the National League. And second during his career, he maintained an impressive fielding average of .974, which is absolutely phenomenal. He also finished his career with a batting average of .281, 316 home runs, and 1,287 RBIs. He was also elected to the All-Star Game seven times, and he earned the Silver Slugger Award twice, and had a career on-base percentage of .364. Now... He was also part of the 2006 World Series team for the Cardinals, where in that series he did hit 344, and he hit the game-winning home run in the NLCS to send them to the World Series. And he always had a reputation of being one of the better third basemen in the game. And even though Rowland's defense is great, his offensive numbers are not as impressive as those of all our Hall of Famers, and that's where I start my pushback because it's not just about one segment of your game. It's about where you elite for a lengthy period of time in all facets of your game. And yes, we do put a little bit more weight on offense, more so than defense. And I think that's another reason why Scott Rowland should not have been elected to the Hall of Fame, especially when you have Barry Bonds, not in the Hall of Fame. Sammy Sosa is not in the Hall of Fame. Garrett Sheffield is not in the Hall of Fame. All with better numbers. But maybe the problem started when Larry Walker was instilled into the Hall of Fame. For some reason, with the baseball writers and this generation, there's a crackdown on the steroid error, and instead of putting in the guys that deserve it, 
because you don't have a blood test and a sample from every single player that was playing at that time, so you can't just pick and choose who was and who isn't going to be a part of the Hall of Fame. But it seems like now they're trying to overcompensate, and instead of putting in guys who deserve it, like a Barry Bonds, a Roger Clemens, a Gary Sheffield, we're left with the Hall of Very Good. Guys like Todd Helton will probably get in, guys like Larry Walker who are already in, and now you've got a Scott Rowland. And I, I, it's my contention in my case that he's not even as good as some of the other third basemen in the Hall of Fame. And here's going to be my argument. First, Roland's prime years didn't last as long. Even though he's a very good player for a number of years, he had a much shorter elite type of playing career. His prime was much shorter. And he also played 17 seasons. So the fact that his prime was shorter over that length of time, in my opinion, actually hurts him. And to the best of my knowledge, the Hall of Fame currently has about 24 different players from third base elected to the Hall of Fame. So we're going to compare to some of the most notable Scott Rowland's careers here. All right, so first we're going to look at George Brett, who accumulated 1,596 runs batted in as well as 3,154 hits and 317 home runs and a lifetime batting average of 305. Scott Rowland has a lower batting average at 281, a lower total number of hits at 2,077, and one fewer home run at 316, but also has far fewer RBIs at 1,287. Then we look at Mike Schmidt who finished his career with a batting average of 267, but had 548 home runs and 1,595 RBIs. So yeah, Roland has a higher batting average, but with 316 home runs, that's far lower than the 548 and a lower RBI total. So the debate there isn't even close. If we compare him to Wade Boggs, who wasn't as uh, prolific a power hitter, Wade Boggs collected 3,010 hits, had 110, 118 home runs, and 1,014 RBIs. His career batting average, however, was 328, and is generally regarded as one of the best hitters in the history of the game. During his career, he led the American League in hitting five times, and his lifetime on-base percentage is 415, which is regarded as one of the best in baseball history. So the disparity in their career batting averages is one of the distinction that stands out between Roland and Boggs. Again, Roland had a career batting average of 281, which is far lower than Boggs' 328. And Boggs had 933 more hits than Roland did, and his on-base percentage was 51 points higher than Roland's. Now, I'll give it to Roland. Roland had better home run numbers at 316 and he was awarded the eight gold gloves which is outstanding while Boggs only had two but again Roland never won a batting title while Boggs won two batting titles and led the league in on-base percentage four times Roland never led the league in on-base percentage once and never finished a season with the best on-base percentage then we're gonna jump down to Eddie Matthews Mr. Eddie Matthews who had a lifetime batting average of 271, which is right, which is lower than Roland's, but had 512 home runs and 1,453 RBIs. So if we look at those numbers, 
there's, there's a common thread here that Roland does not quite stack up to the legends of the game. Whether it be lower batting average, lower home run totals. Again, don't get me wrong. He was in the Hall of Very Good. He should be in the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame. But when we're talking about the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, that's a hallowed place. That's the top 1% of the sport. And now we're watering it down. They do have at the Hall of Fame memorabilia about the different special moments of the game. They're enshrined in Cooperstown, but that does not mean that you need a bust in Cooperstown. Roland will have his Aiko gloves memorialized, which is fantastic. He might even have his NLCS game winner put there, which I don't really know that that was that big a home run in hindsight compared to all the major home runs in baseball. But I don't think he deserved a bust in Cooperstown, especially again when you have Barry Bonds, the home run king, who also had seven MVPs. He was a Hall of Famer before any steroid allegation. Roger Clemens, best pitcher in baseball, left out of the Hall of Fame. So what kind of Hall of Fame are we having when the best of the best are left out and we're letting in the Hall of Very Good? Now, I want to fast forward. We have an eligible class coming up with Adrian Beltre next year. So according to these election standards, Adrian Beltre should get in no problem. All right? And before I jump into Adrian Beltre's numbers, I have a second pushback. How is it that Scott Rowland's numbers jumped as high as they did over the years? Either you're a Hall of Famer or you're not. There are other writers, baseball writers, Rob Parker being one of them, who has this opinion, and I agree. If there's a debate about your career, you're not a Hall of Famer. If we mention the names Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth, Barry Bonds, Ken Griffey Jr., instantly Tom Seaver, Hall of Famer comes to mind. There's no question. Scott Rowland? Meh. There shouldn't be a question if you're a Hall of Famer. Again, you can be in the Team Hall of Fame for all you did for the Cardinals. Same way Felix Hernandez is going to be enshrined in Seattle, or Ryan Sandberg just got a statue with the Cubs. But to have a bust in Cooperstown, same with Fred McGriff, who was voted in through the Veterans Committee. He didn't hit any more home runs. He didn't play any more games. He didn't have, rack up any more hits. So how did his numbers improve over time? Again. This problem with the we got to overcompensate because we have an axe to grind against other superstars, so we're going to let in lesser stars. And nothing against Scott Rowland. Heck of a ball player. But he's not a Hall of Famer. And if we compare Adrian Beltre's numbers to Scott Rowland, again, this little blip all of a sudden, it's going to put a little asterisk in the Hall of Fame, I think, in my opinion. All right, so both have been awarded the gold glove. Adrian Beltre had five. Again, Roland had eight, which is outstanding. But one of the most striking similarities or disparities between the two is, again, going to be home runs and RBIs. Beltre has 477 home runs and driven in 1,707 RBIs. Roland has 316 home runs and 1,287 RBIs. 
Eltre also has 1,089 more hits. He's a part of the 3,000 hit club. Roland is not. There should be certain criteria about the Hall of Fame. 500 home runs gets you in. 3,000 hits gets you in. 300 wins, which I don't think we'll ever see again from pitchers because of the way the analytics are playing out and the way they're being pulled from games and not allowed to pitch complete games. That should be another benchmark. The 3,000 strikeout benchmark. There are certain benchmarks to where you hit them, you're an instant Hall of Famer. If you can't get those, your your record has you have to have impacted the game in a major way, and I don't think Scott Rowland did that. <laughs> Again, Beltre had a greater on base percentage than Rowland, and, and and his home runs and hits it's the biggest distinction. So next year when Beltre is up for election, it should be a no brainer. If you let Scott Rowland in, you're going to have to let Adrian Beltre in. He was also recognized with the Silver Slugger Award, and he was voted to the All-Star Game five times. Roland had seven All-Star Games, but here's another distinction, another knock in my book against Roland. Roland was never even really considered for National League MVP honors, ever. So if he was never really considered the top player in the game for any season, how can he be a Hall of Famer? And I know there's going to be pushback that says, well, look at the longevity of his career. Right. A very good, sustained, long career, but not a Hall of Fame career. We are nitpicking here and bringing it down to the minutia. And when we're doing that, he's not the best of the best. Okay. So Beltran in 2004 finished second in MVP voting. That was also the year Roland finished at his highest for MVP voting with in fourth place. Bond, that was the year that Bonds won with 24 first place votes. And I believe Beltre had eight first place votes, I believe. And then Roland had two or one. Actually, Roland had one first place vote that year. And that was the year that Beltre actually had a grand year. It, Bonds just had a magnificent year. And so you couldn't catch him. So let me run down this 2004 numbers. Beltre had 334, 48 home runs, and driven and drove in 121 RBIs and won the gold glove. Bonds just happened to have a better year hitting 45 home runs and walking the unprecedented 232 times that season. Right. So Beltre just was eclipsed by Bonds' performance that year. Okay. So now if we're looking at Beltre's stats and accomplishments, we're definitely making a greater case for Beltre than Roland, especially when compared to other third basemen who are already in the Hall of Fame. Roland's stats just pale in comparison to those of the who are already in. And despite the fact that he was a great player, it's essential to keep in mind that the induction in the Hall of Fame is, yes, first and foremost about your statistical accomplishments, but also about the legacy you left behind, the impact you had in the game. And sorry, I just don't think Roland did that over his career. Whereas Beltre will get in for that, for his 21-year career, right? He had that 3,000 hit on July 30th, becoming the 31st player in baseball to do that. And then he also has 477 home runs. That's it. You put those two together, case closed, along with the five 
gold gloves along with the all-star selections right so his greatness can't be debated scott rollins can be so those are my thoughts on that that's the fact jack that's the fact jack an umpire's worst nightmare an unquestionably bad call made at the most inopportune time Think you had a bad day? Well, what about being responsible for this? A big game that goes 19 innings, more than six hours, and because of you, the call that ends it all was wrong. And now, from the players with Hall of Fame dreams and aspirations to the umpires with the Hall of Fame nerves. The umpires have a tough job trying to make the right call under pressure, but let's be honest, Sometimes they can make calls that are as accurate as a drunk man trying to hit the bullseye of a dartboard with a blindfold. But, hey, at least we don't have to worry about them getting inducted to the Hall of Shame, where some of them would have a guaranteed spot. Nevertheless, we salute the men in blue for trying their best to keep the game fair. And as first reported by Jesse Rogers of ESPN, Ten season umpires have called it quits at the end of 2022. That includes veteran crew chiefs Ted Barrett and Garrett Greg Gibson. These men have collectively worked more than 200 seasons in MLB and have been a part of some of the game's biggest moments. In fact, Barrett was behind the plate for David Cohn's perfect game in 1999 and Greg Maddox's 300 win in 2004. While Gibson was the home plate umpire for Clayton Kershaw's no-hitter in 2014 and Game 7 of the NLCS in 2018. Sadly folks, Angel Hernandez is not on this retirement list. The retirements are due to nagging injuries while others are coincidental. As the group of umpires entered the league around the same time, so it would make sense that they would retire around the same time. Uh, this comes after a labor dispute saw 22 former umps resign at the end of the 1990s. While they may have made mistakes along the way, these retiring umpires have worked over 200 MLB seasons combined and have left an indelible mark on the game. With the addition of eight more umpires for the instant replay in 2014, the league has seen a significant loss of experience over the last two off-seasons. So what does that hold for the future of umpiring? Some prefer the traditional old-school approach, with only humans calling balls and strikes, while others envision a computer-controlled strike zone. So Major League Baseball has been testing the automatic ball and strike challenge system during the 2022 minor league and Arizona Fall League seasons, and early reviews have been positive. Many players like Tyler Black of the Brewers believe in the human element, but acknowledge that the ABS system could make the calls more accurate. Gibson was the first umpire to have a call overturned based on a manager's challenge in 2014. And then later that season, Gibson was the home plate umpire for Kershaw's no-hitter. He was also behind the plate when the Dodgers beat the Brewers in Game 7 of the 2018 NLCS, and also on the field when manager David Roberts uh, decided to go after Padres manager Andy Green in 2017. You can check out that video here. And for those of you who are listening on the podcast, you can listen to this audio. Something from Andy Green he didn't like and went after Andy Green. 
And now the benches have emptied. That right there is a man who is in control. One hand on his jersey, just guiding him along, not losing his temper. Everything breaking down, but he is in control. Look at him at the bottom of the screen. He's just got Dave Roberts while the melee ensues. Well, the jibber-jabber, because let's be honest, folks, not a lot of fights happen in baseball these days. Not like they did in the 80s and the 90s. Those were some fights. These days, you got a lot of pushing matches, the occasional, but this is a man in control, which you need from your umpiring crew. Letting Dave get all his steam out. But he still got him there. He still got him there. Like, you you stay over there, buddy. Don't, just don't move. Don't move. David Ross, manager of the Cubs, had this to say about the retiring umpires. Quote, they are such a great group of men. They're such a big part of our game. And Teddy Barrett can defuse any situation. Tom Hallion has one of the most aggressive punch outs in the game. You always see him reaching for the sky. Just one of those signature moves you see all the time. I'll miss that, end quote. And these retirements come a year after Joe West, who umpired the most games in history, called it quits. So MLB is losing decades of experience over the past two off-seasons. The retiring crew chiefs have called 16 World Series games, or sorry, 16 World Series, and Barrett leads the way, having worked five fall classics, he was also behind the plate for David Cohn's perfect game in 1999 and Greg Maddox's 300-win in 2004. And while we wish them a fond farewell, it's undeniably a good thing to get new blood in the umpiring ranks. The retirements reportedly have nothing to do with the upcoming on-the-field rule changes for 2023, nor the possibility of the ABS systems being instituted at the MLB level in the near future, so they say. The challenge system provides a more scientific proof of where the strike zone is, while still retaining the human element of the empires. Players and teams will have to decide when they want to challenge, but the ABS system has already gained support from many of the top prospects in the minors. The AFL was the perfect testing ground this last season, since it features many of the top prospects who were on the cusp of the majors. And based on what those prospects are saying, the ABS challenge system does have a lot of supporters. So that trial run came to an end at the end of the last minor league season this past fall. Tyler Black, who is a Brewers infield prospect, was reported to have saying he's had calls go his way and he thinks it's good for overall game and for getting people interested. Black also said that they had done well, he's loving it so far, and that the speed and effectiveness was what was most important. He said the video board looks like it does in tennis, and it involves for crowd engagement. Now what he's talking about is once a ball or a strike is called, if the batter doesn't feel like it was a ball or a strike, he would just tap his head, and the umpire would then get the replay. Now, what he's talking about is during the AFL season, they would put that up on the board. So everybody has a chance to see it. It's not unlike watching the game at home, where you get to see exactly where the pitch missed or hit the strike zone. The technology has already been in use. And so he goes on to say, I'm a big believer in the human element of the game. I think that we have to keep that around as long as we can. I think that the ABS adds even more of a human element in terms of the challenging. 
At the end of the day, a ball is a ball, a strike's a strike. I think the difference between two and one and one and two is definitely big. The more you can narrow that down and get proof of what's a strike, it's going to be a huge difference. I agree. Uh, with the best ums, you just never know what they are. Unfortunately, they're going to make their presence known loud and clear. The ones that are the Angel Hernandez of the group. We think about Jerry Meals, who sat behind catcher during Kerry Wood's 20-game strikeout in 1998. He was also behind the plate during Verlander's no-hitter in 2011. Those are great honors to have on your record, but unfortunately, if you're that one umpire who's known for that glaring call, that's what's going to stand out in your career more than anything. Well, if your strike zone is oscillating more than a fan, that's going to stand out more so than anything. If we're playing baseball video games and the commentary within the video games is making fun of the oscillating strike zone of certain umpires, that tells you more so about the percentage of calls that are missed. Right? Uh, and according to recent studies, it's five to seven of the 76 full-time umpires have been rated for the worst umpires over a decade and a half without being replaced. Think about that. So even more so when you think about how important umpires are to the flow of the game and how often missed calls can affect not only the play of the game, but the outcome. I mean, and depending on the situation, I mean, just ask Clint Hurdle of the Pirates when in extra innings against the Braves, umpire blew the call at home and his team lost like how do you make up for a call like that it could also change things as far as legacies contracts bonus goals franchise championships and so much more so unfortunately the glaring moment that comes to mind with jerry meals is the time that he blew that call behind the plate of the braves pirates game and clint hurdle nearly exploded on him actually we're gonna look at that clip now Daniel McCutcheon and a ground ball to third, breaking for the plate, the throw, and they got him. No! He called him safe! He called him safe! Unbelievable! Jerry Meals called him safe! The throw beat him by a mile! That is incredible! How can you end? He called him safe! How can you end? You've the game? got to be kidding me, Jerry Meals! That is that is unbelievable. The throw beat him by a mile. And he's saying that he wasn't tagged? That is unbelievable. That, this will be replayed a that million times. That is incredible. How The Pirates Earth. lose on a call at the plate by Jerry Meals. Can you end the game this way? How can this happen? A stunner. Almost seven hours later. You've got to be kidding. And you're going to end the game like this? This is how the game ends? That's amazing. That is amazing. You almost feel bad for Jerry here. Like, that's just, <laughs> how did you miss that? And then what do you say? Talk about egg on your face. The whole world saw it. Now, again, at this point, when this happened, there was not the use of instant replay. 
there was not the chance to just go back and see it. Thankfully, we do have instant replay because even after this happened, there were still commentators and former players who were like, no, we don't need instant replay and how much better is the game for it now? With all that's going around baseball, people worried about catchers getting hurt on top of it all. I, I, that's, mean, I, I mean, the, the whole thing is incredible. This is unbelievable. This is amazing. I mean, he tagged him in the knee. I, I don't, I mean, you'd have to clearly see space. End of the season player reviews and surveys ranked the top three and the worst three. And C.B. Buckner, recently retired Joe West, and the ever-present Angel Hernandez are consistently three of the worst umpires in the league. And there was a poll of 100 MLB players done by ESPN in 2010. It said Buckner got the most votes that year. He was the worst umpire in both the American and National League. Joe West, who was made famous, has 40% of the votes that year which was second to Buckner, and the survey named West the baseball's quickest hook. So you had anything to say, he was getting you out of there. You were going to be thrown out of the game. And again, how does that affect legacies? How does that affect contracts at bats? But oddly enough, the one thing that's worse than West's call is his demeanor and disdain for the game, at least certain aspects of the game. He was once quoted as saying that the Yankees and Red Sox were pathetic and disgraceful that year because of how slow they were. Was West fined? No. Wasn't even punished, wasn't suspended, scolded in any sort of way. Player comes out and speaks out against the umps, he's gonna get a fine. Let's, let's just call that a double standard. So, and you know, and bad umpires are not only criticized for balls and strikes, sometimes it's not even necessarily that skill set that makes for a bad ump. Um, if you think about Bob Davidson, with him, it's his hot temper. Right? There was a game between Houston and Philly, and Davidson had obstructed Philly's catcher, Brian Schneider, from picking up a drop ball that was a called third st- or drop third strike. And then Philly, ma- or Philly manager, Charlie Manuel at the time, took to the field, and, the- and they- those two almost came to blows. Um, I wish we would have found the clip for that, but I don't seem to have it. And then following that game, Major League Baseball suspended Davidson for one game for repeated violations of the Office of the Commissioner's Standards for Situation Hearing. Repeated violations and he was only suspended for one game? What is going on in the state of umpiring? Office needs to get itself together. So clearly this wasn't his first violation. And then Davidson also earned the nickname of Bach and Bob. Hardly the honor you want in the umpire profession. So he was cited as Sports Illustrated's fourth fourth worst umpire in baseball in one player poll that they did. So if you think about poor performances, clearly those have been looked at by Major League Baseball, which is why they started experimenting with the use of an automated strike zone, especially at the the minor league level. Um, And I don't think a fully automated system is the answer, but I like this challenge system that gives that element to that human element or human error as you want to call it where they can still you know if you got a foul ball or foul tip they can overrule that call you can still challenge the ball in the strikes you got to be strategic about it Mm -hmm. and it takes the burden uh, off of the umpires 
I think, to get every call correct, right? If you think about every call that needs to happen and all the pressure that's on, especially in the postseason, it's almost impossible for them to get every call correct every time. And the ones that blow those calls, that's usually the games that we remember. So for home plate umpire Pat Holberg, he was able to stay on an even keel and called perfect game in Game 2 of the World Series with the Phillies versus the Astros this past year. According to umpire's scorecard, he on a, let's see, called of the games 129 pitches correctly. Each of them 129 pitches correctly in the Astros' 5-2 win, which is great. Um, and he was calling his first World Series game in his career. So talk about thriving under pressure, um, which is great. So we can call that top of the line, but what about the rest? Right? He also had a near-perfect game. Uh, with the Phillies and the Rockies, when he was 122 for 123, where he missed a uh, strike and called it a ball. Again, that's one umpire in two scenarios. More often than not, I believe the number is 10% across the board. All umpires miss 10% of the calls across the board. So I know we as fans want to, want every call to go our way and not be uh, messed up, and we want the umpire to get it right, and we want them to have the human element, but we got to think logically about this, right? An umpire is working 142 games at least a year. He's got to watch the entire game, which can last up to about three hours with no real breaks. Players get to go in the dugouts, get to go in the clubhouse, get some water, take a load off for a little bit. Umpire's got to be out there, game on, eyes on the entire time. They also got to make a lot of close calls, especially those bang-bang calls. They got to be standing in the crouch position the whole time if they're behind the plate with catcher's gear on. And there's not really much shade depending on the field that you're on, depending on what type of the summer you're in. And here's an interesting fact. The home plate umpire stands and then kneels behind the catcher. Uh, and then they've kept a, a record of that, of how many squats since 2008. Uh, and Tim McClellan made 11,417 calls in the squat position. So that that is, he's now known as the squat champion. So 11,000 squats. That's, that was ridiculous. You got to be tired, buddy. So, all right. So then you got to think about MLB umpires have a host of pregame duties to do as well, which is none is more important than expecting the baseball. They have to inspect every single baseball and make sure that the team provides backups for those baseballs. They got to gl- remove any gloss and they got to rub down each baseball. And then they got to hear it from the umpire. They got to hear it from the coaches. They got to hear it from the players. They got to hear it from the fans all day long. It really is a thankless job. I don't think that they get enough credit for what they go through but at the end of the day let's get them some help is my issue right so i mean but let's all also let's not forget that there are human beings behind the face masks behind the blue shirt black shirt whatever they're wearing that day um, and they do have human interest stories and they are real people with families traveling just as much as the players do right so they're going to miss some calls and i just say let's get it right there's a standard strike zone it shouldn't fluctuate depending on your batting stance. So if you're Aaron Judge and you've got a 6-7 frame, but then you crouch down to a 5-9 batting stance, 
that shrinks your batting zone. That's crazy. There should be a standard zone. And we use technology in every other facet of the game with replays, stat cast, pitch track. We want to see how hard the home run has been hit. Why not get the umpires some help? We're actually going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to jump into one of those interesting human stories, talking about Malachi Moore and his journey to becoming a professional umpire. We'll be right back, folks. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. I consider, I consider myself, myself the luckiest, the luckiest man, man on the face, on the of, the face of the this year and if you haven't it's one to pay attention to he's going to be taking the field as a full-time umpire for the first time this upcoming season and he will also be the first person from the Compton Youth Academy to make it to the big leagues as an umpire he's also only the 10th black umpire in MLB history in honor of Karen Danley the first black crew chief in baseball he will wear number 44 with pride he's quoted as saying my god what a miracle Daryl Miller also, the director of the Compton Youth Academy, states, It's pretty amazing. He's such a testament to never giving up, never giving up on your dreams. And this guy tried everything to stay in the game. What a wild ride. End quote. So as MLB announced 10 retirements and promotions from the minors, Alan Porter and Adrian Johnson also became the second and third black umpire crew chiefs. Alan Porter, who was 45, became a regular employee in 2013, and in 2010, Johnson, who was 47 at the time, became a full-time MLB umpire. Erwin Danley was the first black crew chief, named in 2020, who unfortunately shortly retired in, after the 2021 season. Always reeks of this uh, little too late, little, little too late sentiment there. It's always just a little too late. A lot of African-Americans know what I'm talking about. I mean, if you look at the coaching ranks in football, look at umpiring ranks, look at the GM ranks, it just just reeks of that. And you only have to be African-American to realize that. I mean, a lot of people go through that, but it just it reeks of that. I mean, he was named in 2020 and then retired in 2021. Why wait so long? Just my my. When you have so many of the other umpires who waited as the worst, why wait so long? Anyway, so Malachi Moore he tried his hand in making the big leagues as a groundskeeper. I'm hoping he'd be in charge of the field at Dodger Stadium or Petco Park. He thought about the possibility of a coaching job or a front office position, perhaps one day becoming a general manager. He grew up in a 1,400 square foot house with his brother, mother, and grandparents in East Compton. 
where the windows were shielded by metal bars. Unfortunately, they couldn't silence the ugly sound of gunshots and sirens, where, as a 15-year-old, he witnessed his older brother Nehemiah shot and killed in a drive-by as a victim of a mistaken identity. From then, Moore vowed to live out the dreams of himself and his brother, and as much as he loved Compton, one day he would move out, have a family, and purchase his home with a swimming pool. Today, he's one of baseball's rising stars, going from earning $1,500 a month in his first job as an umpire in the summer Northwoods League in 2012. I have ties to the Northwood League, go Eau Claire Express. I uh, will always fondly hold a place in my heart. Around that time, too, so I think I might have seen him on the field. I, that was the time I took a break from playing and decided to mascot for the Eau Claire Express as tracks. And I think 2012 might have been the last time I went up there for the last few months to do it, if I'm not mistaken. It might have even been 2011, to be honest. So I might have missed him by a year, if that's the case, if my memory holds. But, uh, so anyway, he went from there to making $3,500 a month umpiring in AAA, and now earning at least the minimum $150,000 a year as a big league umpire in the show. Congrats on that, Mr. Moore. In a recent interview, he shares a memory where he says, I'll still remember the first game I umpired at the academy. They handed me an envelope with cash. There was about $80 in it. I thought it was a mistake. I gave it back and said, I think you gave me the wrong envelope. I worked one and a half hours for a seven inning game and got that? I was like, wow, you can have fun and make money doing this? I'm in. Danley, who retired a year ago, is the man most responsible for Moore's career path. He found himself hanging out with his Compton College teammates in November 2010 when there was a one-day umpiring camp at the Compton Academy. The umpires asked the players to participate, seeing if they had any potential ability. Moore began his career at the Arizona Rookie League in 2012, slowly moving up along the way to the South Atlantic League, the California League, the Texas League, the Pacific Coast League, and he got a huge break during the 2020 COVID season when 11 veteran umpires opted out. It's such a long process, says Moore, married with two children and now a first-time homeowner. The odds of you making it are slim to none, and there was only 76 full-time umpires. But I was so focused on doing this, he says, I didn't have a plan B, to be honest with you. He goes on to state, it's either the majors or I'm just another guy that didn't make it out of Compton. He recants that story for the USA Today about Chief Danley's wisdom and guidance. Danley, who was retired a year ago, is the man most responsible. He tells USA Today that Crew Chief Danley told him in November 2010 when he was at that one-day umpiring camp. He said, hey, I want to talk to you. Come with me down to the batting cages. Moore, at that point, politely declined. He said, I remember telling him, I'm good, man. I was a second baseman and an outfielder. I'll never put on catcher's gear. Danley then recanted and said, No, I don't think you understand what I'm saying. You're coming with me, and you're putting on the umpiring gear. Danley sat Moore down and gave him some reality. Young man, you're playing on this junior college team. You don't start. You sit on the bench. And where is this all going? It's a harsh reality. Then he says, look, I was a first-team All-American, and I didn't even get drafted out of college at San Diego State. 
So there are alternatives. Why not try umpiring? What can it hurt? Next thing you know, more is going to the Harry Wenstell Umpiring School in Daytona Beach, Florida. Arriving wearing sweatpants, a hoodie, and flip-flops, looking around to see what every el everyone else is wearing, which is a suit and tie, and everyone else brought umpiring gear except for him. His first wake-up call. He missed the cut, needless to say, and didn't graduate from the famed umpiring school in his first year, where he returned back to Compton. He kept working at the Youth Academy, and actually went back a second year and graduated from the Academy. Moore never forgot his roots. He returned every winter to the Compton Youth Academy to instruct kids. He now has an umpiring camp every year at the Academy, and he spent a recent weekend at Chase Field in Phoenix to work with the charitable UP UMPS Care, and he's going to keep volunteering his services, hoping that there will be plenty of others who look just like him following in his footsteps. Kerwin Danley goes on to say, I'm so proud of him. You never know what can happen. Look at Malachi. I didn't know anything about him. I just saw a young black kid, a baseball player who came from the same kind of neighborhood I came from, and someone who had a desire to stay in the game. He's going to have a long future in this game. End quote. And you better believe Moore says he plans on paying it forward. Quote, I remember being hell-bent on being the head groundskeeper for the Dodgers or the Padres, which is where it would have been just fine, Moore says. But man, being a big league umpire, what a blessing. I owe the Compton Youth Academy and umpire school so much. Believe me, the least I can do is try to inspire others. I love to help. I love the feeling of helping others. So many people impacted my life. Shame on me if I don't impact others too. And for that, Malachi Moore, I salute you. Well, coming up, we're going to take a look at the World Baseball Classic and how some of the teams are shaping up ahead of Thursday's roster reveal. And coming up after the break, we're going to take a look at the World Baseball Classic and how some of the teams are shaping up ahead of Thursday's MLB Network roster reveal. And later, we're going to dive into that automatic. And coming up on Inside the Lines, we're actually going to delve into the automatic balls and strike system. We're going to break down some video and really get a feel for what that looks like coming up. Pavel Hadim told us on day one of this tournament that his team was from a small country with big dreams. And tonight, they are one out away from punching a ticket to the 2023 World Baseball Classic. First pitch to Angel Beltre may have done it. A grounder to first. It's a new day on the international landscape. The Czech Republic is headed to the World Baseball Classic. to watch baseball unite nations and while the calendar says march the baseball feels like october
throw to second is oh. in time. Now to delve into the thrills and excitement of playing baseball internationally. Folks, it's time for the World Baseball Classic this year, coming in March. It was supposed to take place 2021, but then the pandemic hit, so it's baseball time. Unfamiliar to some, the World Baseball Classic is an international baseball competition. It includes teams from the nations such as United States, Japan, and Canada, Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, takes place well it's supposed to take place every four years um, again because of the pandemic it got pushed back but it is regarded as the top international baseball competition at least it's gotten that way over the last few years uh, it used to be a bit amateurish but not so much anymore so, time to explore baseball classics past uh, debuted in 2006 the competition has been more well known and prestigious ever since since Japan's victory against Cuba in the first tournament championship match, we've witnessed some genuinely amazing performances from teams all around the world. <coughs> the degree of talent on exhibition, one of the things that makes the World Baseball Classic so unique has to be the degree of talent on display. Competition is stiff as some of the top athletes from around the world gather to play for their nations. And keep in mind, people, some of the best talent does not play Major League Baseball. Just throwing it out there. All right, so the World Baseball Classic is a must-see event. All right, so we've got to review some of the teams. First of all, Japan. Got to start there. Why? Because Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani is the number one talent to keep an eye on. The two-way star is the most thrilling player in the game right now. Even though Judge just hit the 62 home runs, I still think it's Shohei because of what he can do consistently. I think Judge stole it for a year, but I think Shohei steals it right back this year, starting at the World Baseball Classic. Update news on Shohei. He's actually thinking about taking over closer duties for the classic so we'll have to see how that pans out do they want him to start do they want him to close closing would be more in line with more of a spring training type feel where he's doesn't have to throw so many long innings i mean he's a superior athlete but maybe that's what they're thinking also maybe he's just thinking i can come in in high stakes situations and shut the door the dragon is one to be feared i'll tell you that much the dual threat athlete all right, so then we've got Jose Altuve of Venezuela. He's going to also play in the Classic. He's a five-time MVP. He's a five-time All-Star and a League MVP. So he's going to bring his A game. And then we got a handful of our American athletes who are going to join the ranks. we got the aforementioned Aaron Judge, Nolan Arenado, Christian Yelich, who doesn't really quite excite me as much. He's had some down years the last couple of years. Maybe he hit his peak and that was it. So, But he's, he'll be good to come off the bench, I think. I don't think he'll start. So that's just a handful of those players. I do know one thing is for certain. The new competition format is going to make it a little harder. It's going to double elimination for the first time. So you're going to have to really bring your A game twice as long, really. I mean, 
it's not just a we can get hot and beat a team you have to beat them twice and at this level it's not going to be as easy as people think so i don't really give the u.s top chances i think puerto rico is going to be tough then japan's going to be real tough i think the dominican is going to be outstanding dominican republic so we'll see we'll see what happens um so First time in the tournament history, we're moving to 20 teams from 16. All right, so four of the teams qualified, and then 16 were already invited from the 17 classics. So the four teams that had to qualify played in Panama City at Rod Carew National Stadium. That took place September 30th to the 5th. And then there was Armin Wolf Arena in Regensburg, Germany, September 16th to the 21st. That was the other round. So this first round in 2023 here in March is going to have 20 teams. They will be five team pools for round robin play. And then the top two teams of each pool of the four first round teams are going to proceed to the quarterfinals. So it sounds a lot like the World Cup, actually, is how they're doing that, which I'm not opposed to. I mean, I like the round robin format. I like more baseball. Plus, I would rather see World Baseball Classic matches than spring training matches i mean they're cool for developing talent and seeing people get you know working their kinks out but there's nothing like competition baseball so my pick i'm saying it's japan versus puerto rico if they're not in the same pool if that can play out i think those are gonna be my uh for right now those are my finals again thursday MLB Network is going to do a roster reveal, so I'll be recapping that in the next episode. Locations for this year's World Classic. The host games are going to be in Marlins Park in Miami, Petco Park in San Diego, Chase Field in Phoenix, and Globe Life Field in Arlington. They were picked because of their cutting-edge cutting-edge amenities and capacity to offer viewers a first-rate watching experience. I've not been to those stadiums yet. I I really do want to go to Globe Life Field. That seems like just a massive experience to watch baseball. Plus, I'm a Mets fan, so it'd be nice to go catch DeGrom if he's healthy Uh, once in a while. um, Not that I live near Texas, but I want to travel and see all the 30 teams. Ballparks, I do want to check out Globe Life Field at some point. And then in Japan, you've got the Tokyo Dome in Tokyo and the Yokohama Stadium in Yokohama. They're going to host the Japan Games. And so they've got a lot of history in those places. You know, the Tokyo Dome runs a lot of shows. Uh, They even run a lot of wrestling events. So it's interesting what else... I gotta check out what else is run at the Tokyo Dome. But uh, the Estado de Baseball in Monterrey and Monterrey... And the Estado Frenano in Guadalajara will both host games in Mexico. So they're going to offer a fervent spectator experience. And who's to say, with some of these athletes coming out this year, I, I can't wait. I really can't wait. So, And as far as I know, there's not going to be that extreme shift in the classic either. So we're going to actually be able to see some athletic plays. That was one thing missing with the extreme shift, and I'm glad they took it away, and we'll cover that next episode. But it took away a lot of athleticism from the infield. 
in the outfield, and I'm glad that they uh, they did away with it. So, notables joining Japan's team: Lars Newtbar of the Cardinals and Masataka Yoshida of the Red Sox are also going to be joining Shohei for J- Team Japan. So they finalized that. Uh, actually, looks like the rosters are going to be finalized on Thursday. Hmm. All right. Actually, that might have been last Thursday. So, Newt Bar has a Japanese mother, uh, was raised in California, so that's why he qualifies. He'll actually be the first player to qualify to represent Japan who wasn't Japanese born himself. So, that'll be interesting. A little storyline. Uh, you've also got Yu Darvish. Seiya Suzuki is also going to join Team Japan. Team Cuba. I'm excited about Team Cuba. I'm, I'm looking to see how they're going to place this, uh, this go-around. Uh, officials revealed last Wednesday that the Cubans registered with the major league baseball organizations and other international clubs will be the first time that they played alongside domestic players on the national squad that will compete in the Classic. Usually, the players that have come over to play in the States are not allowed to play for the national team uh, because they want to maintain their amateurism status and other political stuff we're not going to get into uh, so but that has all changed and so state television is broadcasting they're going to reveal the 30 players who represented team cuba when i'm not sure but i'll keep an eye on it and try to figure that out the competition does start march 8th in taiwan let's see Oh, I found the list. So we got Yoan Mankata. A couple of the notable players that are going to play for Team Cuba. Yoan Mankata and Luis Robert from Chicago, the White Sox. We've also got some of their AAA uh, rosters on the Mudhens. You got Andy Ibanez of the Tigers. You got right-hander Miguel Romero of the Las Vegas Aviators. And then you've got right-hander Roland Ba. Belouse, there you go. I'm sure I butchered it, but we're going to go with Belouse of the Omaha Storm Chasers. So, And then due to ongoing restrictions from Washington against Cuba, Cuba did need special clearance to organize the participation of MLB players. So the agreement does forbid those players from traveling to Cuba to train with the team, which is going to be interesting. So they're not going to have a lot of camaraderie. They're just going to be hopping and playing. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out for Cuba. But it's interesting to see now with their economic hardships and policies to restrict athletes' freedom of movement now that they've got some of these MLB stars coming to play, how that's going to look going forward. Puerto Rico has Carlos Correa joining the team. He's going to join Francisco Lindor. Mexico has Adrian Gonzalez, former league MVP. I haven't heard his name in a while. Uh, f- former five-time All-Star, and Rowdy Telez is also on the team. Well, let's see. You've got one of the best shortstops in Xander Bogarts, who's going to join uh, the Netherlands. Well, and it looks to be all about the updates of player information I have so far. Another bit of news to note. Team captain Mike Trout says his back is pain-free, has been for a while, and as someone who has back issues himself, it's huge when you're talking about swinging the bat, 
diving, running, your back affects everything. So the fact that Mike Trout is pain-free, which means we'll have another less-than-stellar Angels finish. Won't matter. Sorry, Mike Trout. I love the guy. I think he's a great ball player. He's got the charisma of a cactus, but he sure can play. But that team, man, Artie Moreno, I had hopes for the Angels. And with the Anthony Rendon signing, you've got... They, they, they had Justin Upton for a while. They really have never put a winner out there since their World Series run, and that's sad for Angels fans. But he's ready for the classic, people. He says the only thing on his mind is trying to win the whole thing. And quote, There are many wonderful nations with many fantastic teams, but wanting to win is the only reason I joined up. You do realize there is nothing else. Anything less is an error. So... I, I, I speak from the uh, former MVP, or three-time MVP. So he, he missed time from July to August with that upper back and ribcage issue. And then when he came back, he did hit 308, 16 home runs, and 29 RBIs in 40 games. Uh, for an overall batting average of 283 with 40 home runs and 80 RBIs in 119 games. So he's still putting up Mike Trout's down numbers, but... You know, we'll see how that plays out for the rest of the season. I'm excited to see him for the Classic. You know, hopefully he doesn't get hurt. So, let's see. And then the, uh, yeah, this is other quote. Last year when I returned during the season, I felt a little bit. But since then, I've been very well on top of it. Just continuing the same routine in the weight room. Just a warm-up, making sure all the back muscles surrounding it are strong. So, anyway, he says he feels good. I'm happy he's back. I'm excited for him. He's going to join. I think Pete Alonzo is on the team. Uh, so I'm excited to see those two power hitters just go out there and mash, if that's the case. If his back is the way it is, it's going to be fun. Although I will say, Nolan Arenado, Trey Turner, and Mookie Betts along with Trout and Alonzo, that's and Paul Goldschmidt. It's going to be a nice little roster we're putting together. I mean, Clayton Kershaw is going to be pitching, Adam Wainwright, Logan Webb, Nestor Cortez. I mean, I'm not thrilled about the pitching staff Kershaw's a little older Wainwright's a little older actually when was the last time Wainwright had a great year so you know I wish we had better starters but we'll take what we got leaning on the offense that's for sure and schedule update our first game US is going to be in Phoenix on March 11th again the roster reveal is Thursday I'll recap that and we come back from the break, we're going to jump into the automatic balls and strike system. We're going to jump into the automatic balls and strike system. Stay tuned, folks. back from the break folks now we're going to jump over to las vegas where i've compiled quite a bit of video to kind of highlight what i think is the best argument 
and demonstration of the automatic balls and strikes system. I pulled content from Fox 5 Atlanta, MLB Network, CBC out of Canada. And again, I think this illustrates the best use of the RoboUmp, which is in fact actually a computer system. So let's jump into the video and then at the end we will recap what we saw. There may be some points where I jump it in the middle, but I think it does a pretty good chance, pretty good job of explaining at least the way I edited and compiled them together. Like hot dogs and beer, some argue booing umpires for a bad call is tradition at baseball games. You know, yelling at the umpire, just having a good time, you know, uh, it makes the game feel like authentic, makes it feel real. You know, in real high stakes situations like the World Series, and we need the most accurate call possible. Well, the Las Vegas Aviators will play the Albuquerque Isotopes this week, and this is the Aviators' third home season uh, series, excuse me, also their third series using the quote unquote rope. Umpires. You're doubtful. I am doubtful, very much so. I like the old system. Now I'll tell you that again. I was happy the way the old system worked. <laughs> Even if there were disagreements on the Oh, field? absolutely. I liked the disagreement once in a while. So when you're watching baseball, myself, like I really get into it. So like I yell she at does. the umpires, <laughs> I yell at the players, and I feel like I lost that one part where I can't yell at the Empire anymore. Because he's because, right all the time. Because oh, yeah. no matter what, he's right. I wasn't always sold on this dog. I'm serious. I was not always sold. I'm completely sold now. Electronic strikes on. Oh, stop. Where are you on that? It'd all be such, so much fun. I don't want that. Why not? Uh, because Why not? I, I want a human element to it. I, I want some human element well, That's the human it. error part of uh, it. And so no, what? We live with it. It's not the end of the world. How about my God? One order. pitch and one game and Jumi got but a you can, with But you can, get, you can get better. You can have the, either it's inside that zone or out and it's a ball or it's a strike. It's as simple as that. No, and there's no, no. beefing. There's okay, no just because you have the technology doesn't mean you have to use it. I, I like the umpires. I think, it's, I think it's part of the game. I think arguing with the umps is part of the game. Balls and strikes. All that stuff stuff. I just think, why do we have to change everything? Why, why do we have to change everything, BK? You, you know why? Because then the concentration, the focus will be on the athletes, on the game. Oh. And get, get the umpires help. It's not, look, we, we accept it all around, the, all around the diamond now that you get them help, get the call right. We all know, no matter, I'm not blaming the umpires, and they'll always have a, they'll have a job. You still need somebody back there, but you can just get help and say that's either a ball or a strike, and those, um, those arguments are over. Well, you yeah. know, Joe Cousy did a game in Chicago. I don't think Cousy's a great umpire, but he did a game in Chicago. Home plate. The Cubs, after the game, moaned and groaned about the strike zone. Quas, what's the system called? Quas Tech, whatever it's called? <laughs> you know, the home plate where they judge it's Quas Tech. Quas Tech. Yeah, yeah. It's they not know that he now, missed yeah. one pitch in a game. Right. And the commissioner of baseball went to Joe Matt and Joe, 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 he missed one pitch in this game. And he went into the umpire's room after the game in Ridley Field. And complimented Cuzzy for missing one pitch in that game. These umpires so are maybe so these good. umpires aren't as bad so as people think. Oh, no, but what this would do is it, it, it would eliminate the beefing from the players. Because the players also, you're always going to work in your own self your, your own self-interest. Right. So you're always going to think you got jobbed. And a lot of times the calls are correct. I think right now the, the home plate umpiring is so much better. And listen, and, and not to go back, but remember the home plate, the playoff game, Eric Gregg, LeVon Hernandez. Oh, that was terrible. I mean, th I mean we're talking about 87. balls that are five, six inches off the Cold plate. Strike. That, that's not happening now today. These home plate umpires, for the most part, do a terrific job. And listen, that's a tough job. And you're going to be out there, particularly a Red Sox-Yankees game. You're going to have eight pitching changes. The pitch, There's going to be 300 pitches thrown in that game. And it's hard to concentrate the entire time. But I think, for the most part, they do a terrific job. No, you're making my point. A human can't do it perfectly. 
As cool and bizarre as it would be to see um, the uh, Jetson-style robots on the field, it's more like eight surveillance-looking cameras at the top of the bleachers. Major League Baseball introduced an automated ball and strike system, or ABS, to increase the accuracy of calls and reduce delays. Yeah, I think people have the misconception that it's going to be a robot behind the plate. Uh, Lost in Space is one of my favorite shows. It's not the robot from Lost in Space back there. The umpire's going to have AirPods in, and when the ball comes over, and that basically tells him instantly if it's a ball or strike. Cameras located at the top of the bleachers detect the strike zone based on the player's height. Once it determines whether the pitch was a ball or strike, a robotic voice tells the umpire through an earpiece. ABS was first introduced in July 2019 in the Atlantic League of Professional Baseball. It's now reached the top of the minor leagues. The majors could be next. Right. Well, first of all, you're not going to really tell, no matter your age, uh, that there's a robot, quote-unquote, behind the plate, because it's not that. You'll see a physical umpire up there. They have a, a belt on. They'll have something in their ear, kind of in their ear, indicating balls or strikes. So it's not like uh, Johnny Five robot is back there calling balls and strikes. You still need a physical umpire for, you know, foul tips, for safe uh, out plays and all that stuff, too. So... Uh, it's kind of a misnomer to call it a robo-up, although we've called it that. It's really a camera system that helps do that. No different than when you watch ESPN, you kind of see the strike zone that's on there. It's using the technology we have at hand to make sure we get those calls right. Uh, but you'll still see a physical umpire back there. So how many cameras? How, how does it all work? So there's actually eight cameras. It's the Hawkeye system that's used, in, and it's really multifaceted. They're all over the stadium, four of which are really used for the automatic ball strike zone. Others really... Uh, do different things and uh, bet metrics and stuff that the team might want to see. So it's really all over. Uh, again, you'll have that uh, waistband around. Uh, you'll have something in your ear that really calls ball and strike. Uh, it's really instantaneous. You know, they ran this out in the independent leagues all the way up through A-ball last year. Obviously, to get it to AAA obviously means that Major League Baseball feels we're getting close. This is this is big boy baseball, as close as you get to Major League Baseball, and feel really it's instantaneous. And so as a fan, you're not really going to know uh, uh, that there's an actual, again, robot calling that for them. It's really the camera system. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you want to get the call right. <clears throat> you know, other sports have done things to get calls right. And so baseball, obviously I know a baseball purist kind of like the, uh, you know, the, uh, the human element to the game. And I think that's still going to be there in a lot of ways in baseball. But to take just the strike zone, I think pitchers are in favor of it, right? I think hitters are in favor to have a consistent zone. We know that umpires, no fault of their own. This is a hard game. Guys are throwing harder and harder. Uh, breaking balls are breaking different speeds and angles, and so it's so hard to get it right. Obviously, there's livelihoods behind all of this as well, and so um, I think it gets it right. And so from a pace of play standpoint, to make sure that you know calls are right, uh, managers and players and pitchers can't argue these calls. They'll have iPads in the dugout, too, to check the work to see exactly what it was. And I think Major League Baseball, too, can set that consistent strike zone so everybody knows what it is. So it only helps speed up the game. And, again, from a fan perspective, you're not going to know really that, uh, you know, that uh, Hawkeye system is making that strike zone call. And I think, it, you know, I think being an umpire is one of the toughest things you can possibly be in sports. Uh, I think it's harder and harder to get people to want to be professional umpires. And if anything, it takes a burden off of their shoulders. Uh, you know, there's some unintended consequences. I'm sure, you know, when you talk about being a catcher who frames a ball really well, there's no longer really a necessity for that, right? And so I think there are some unintended consequences. But, again, if the positives really outweigh the negatives, it's something that you ought to do. But at the end of the day, I think, 
you know, those umpires, the human element, you know, you get deep into games. And sometimes that zone changes, you know, gets a little tighter, maybe gets a little wider. Um, so I think really it is a burden off of their shoulders, and it's something that, you know, I think hopefully helps the pace of play the game. As we've gotten this year with our pitch clocks that we have too, it's really sped the game up, but in a way that doesn't feel like it's too quick. It feels like you're seeing a lot of action, which is what fans want. And so when you have delays on, um, you know, strike or ball calls or arguments and all those things. Uh... A historic day here with TrackMan being implemented here at New Britain Stadium. A lot of out-of-town markets are here. CBC is here out of Canada. The New York Times is here. All here to see this guy. The umpire, the masked man behind the plate. There's a saying in baseball, the best umpire is the one you never notice. Except today, all eyes are on Tim Rosso. You see, despite appearances, Tim is not calling the shots today. A computer is doing it for him. It's called TrackMan, and as you'll hear from the league's commissioner, Rick White, it's pretty precise. TrackMan itself uses a Doppler radar system where they have three lasers fixed on a point, in this case its own plate. As a ball crosses the plate, that communication then transmits to the umpire on the field where he hears the word strike or the word ball and then he signals that. It delivers a standardized product and the consistency from umpire to umpire, day to day, inning to inning, is something that really does need improvement. It's botched calls like this TrackMan is trying to prevent. Take a look at that pitch again. And as you can see, the technology to accurately call a pitch already exists. You see it on TV every day, and they even use it to train umpires. But replacing them with it, that's new. And according to Mark Williams, sorely needed. He's a professor at Boston University with a keen interest in baseball. How consistent are umpires? Well, it's, it's interesting. Looking at the data, we, we looked at over 4 million pitches over 11 seasons, starting in 2008 through 2018. And what we found is umpires are consistently inconsistent. Here's what he's talking about. Data, direct from Major League Baseball. And you can see how detailed it is. On this day, this pitcher threw a sinker in the bottom of the first, and the umpire called it a strike. He was wrong. In general, umpires get it wrong almost 10% of the time. That's all pitches. But certain pitches, they get wrong almost 30% of the time. And that's across all umpires in Major League Baseball. So this isn't just one, two, or 10 umpires. This is actually 76 umpires. To understand why they're getting it so wrong, consider the strike zone. So I'm at bat. For a pitch to be a strike, the ball has to cross home plate and come roughly between my knees and my chest. If it's a human umpire watching, that's a judgment call. Why are those calls so hard to make? Well, I think it's obstructed, right? So we have the catcher and we have the umpire behind. We have the batter like yourself. So it's hard to actually see all of the plate. So that's number one. And I think, two is some umpires just do a better job of anticipating where the ball is going to move and get into the plate. You know, my argument is not to, you know, fire the umps, and hire the technology. It's really to use the technology so umpires can make better decisions. 
Okay, so we wanted to give you a sense of what the TrackMan system actually sounds like, what the umpire is hearing. But the thing is, it's so proprietary that Major League Baseball actually stepped in at the last second to tell us, no, 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 you can't record that. They did let us listen to it live though. And so I can tell you what's striking about it is how quickly the computer can make the call. Watch this. Ball. It's actually that fast. We could have put two lights out in center field and had a red light come up when it was a ball and a green light come up when it was a strike. But we felt that took some of the focus and control of the game out of the umpire's hands. So what role does the umpire still have? Well, technically, the umpire is allowed to overrule the system, but even then, only in a really egregious case, like if the ball hits the dirt before crossing home plate. Otherwise, even borderline calls, the umpire is supposed to defer to the computer. And if you ask players, like starting pitcher Devin Burke, that's not a good thing. He wants the umpire to be part of the game. For example, to be able to reward a pitcher with a strike, even if it's a borderline ball. If you can show you an umpire you can consistently hit a spot, they usually give it to you, you know, nine times out of ten. But if you consistently hit a spot that's outside the zone now, you're walking, guys. It's going to be a, it's a love-hate relationship probably going forward, honestly. You know, I've been umpiring for 13 years, and this is the first time that I've had to listen to a machine, you know, tell me what to call. Remember Tim Rosso, the umpire? Well, we got to speak with him after his very first TrackMan game, and you can tell he's a bit conflicted. He wants to believe the computer can help him, but was it always accurate? For the most part. You hesitated part. there. Yeah, for you the know, most part. You, I, you feel like, uh, I feel like anything is ever going to be perfect. I feel like, you know, baseball is an imperfect game. And if you put science into it to try to make it perfect, I don't think that there'll ever be a finish line, you know? Let me, let me put it a different way. There can only be one best umpire, right? There only, can only be one worst, and there's everybody in between. And the best umpire calling balls and strikes now has been joined, in our case, by 80 other umpires who are also calling accurate balls and strikes. So does it take the game out of their hands? Yes, but I wouldn't say that the game ever should have been in their hands. Now, bear in mind, this is just a pilot project. There's no timeline for Major League Baseball to actually adopt this at all. But most people seem to think it's inevitable. Coming soon, just a question of when. I didn't know if they started it already. Right, not in the major leagues. That's what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, not in the major leagues. Yes, when are they going to start in Boston? Yeah. Well, they'll see how this After goes. All, okay, <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Now, you've seen the best arguments, in my opinion, for the automatic balls and strikes challenge system. Again, I love the idea. There's not an actual robot back there, but they're using the technology that's already in play, already on the field to make sure that we get the calls correct. Because if you think about how much goes on during a game and how much is on the umpire's shoulders, I'm all for it. Everybody's got a standardized strike zone. Let's just go on about the game. You don't see them changing the height of the hoop in basketball for taller or shorter players. You also don't see them changing the goalposts in football. So why is it in baseball we can't seem to get a standardized strike zone? It's on its way, folks. It's on its way. Let's take a quick musical interlude before we get to the business of baseball.
discussing the business of baseball. First, we're going to start with the most recent news of Artie Moreno, Angels owner, deciding not to sell the team. They made headlines last August when they announced plans to explore or sell the team. But according to reports, after much speculation and interest from several parties, Moreno decided to take the franchise off the market, stating that there is still unfinished business with the team. Now, while some fans may be relieved to see Moreno stay as owner, there are also skeptics who question his commitment to winning over making money. So despite a willingness to hand out large contracts to star free agents, the Angels have also missed the postseason in each of the last eight years. However, Angels have made a significant move this year. They brought in all-star lefty Tyler Anderson. They brought out outfielder Brett Phillips, infielder Brandon Drury, all signed to multi-year deals. And now the club's payroll is roughly about $206 million, which is up from the 180 it was in 2022. But let's be real, the Angels haven't been relevant in those last eight years. You had one of the biggest stars in Mike Trout. You had the Anthony Rendon signing after his big year in Washington. But you really haven't done much. You brought in a few middle-level pitchers. Never really had that one ace to lead the staff. Closing situation's been abysmal. You have Otani. You're not really winning with him either. And that's one of his most important qualifications for staying with the Angels is that they build a winner. They haven't proven it otherwise. And and that's probably the biggest question on people's minds is how is this going to impact two-way star Otani? Um, He signed that one-year $30 million deal to avoid arbitration and wasn't expected to sign or even explore an extension until the new ownership was in place. Well, the ownership is still the same. So Otani and His representation could explore an extension at any time. But again, winning is the most important thing to him. And they'll have to prove it to him. But again, you've got free agency coming up next year. You've got ready-made winners around the league that are going to throw big money at him. He's probably going to warrant $500 Maybe even slightly more if there's a bidding war, which there will be. I mean, if you think about all facets of his game... He's going to require a lot of money. I mean, I'm kind of sad for Juan Soto. I feel like he had a chance to have that $440 million contract. And given what happened in San Diego, unless he has a monster year, he lost his $400 to $500 million contract option. But again, he's young, so he has a chance to bounce back. But as of right now, it's all Otani right now. And so while the Angels have a competitive roster... Bigger picture still remains to be seen. Are they going to deliver on the Otani promise? Are they going to bring a World Series to Anaheim? And is the possibility of realignment and an expansion within Major League Baseball going to have anything to do with that? Because I'll tell you, if they realign the way it looks like they're proposing with the Angels and Dodgers in the same division, you can kiss whatever chance you had of making the playoffs goodbye. And now we're going to turn our attention to the reinstatement of former Atlanta Braves GM, John Capalella. 
Campbell will serve more than five years of a suspension originally un- announced as permanent after MLB concluded that the Braves circumvented international signing rules from 2015 to 2017. The Braves were stripped of 13 prospects and were unable to bargain at full strength for a top Latin American prospect until 2021. So that's huge stuff. I don't know how this story went under the radar, but this is huge. The decision to reinstate Capilella, despite the severity of the violation, is not unique in the history of Major League Baseball. If you think about George Steinbrenner, Pete Rose, Shoeless Joe Jackson, all are examples of individuals who have faced serious consequences for their actions. But only Steinbrenner was eventually reinstated of that group I just mentioned. On the other hand, suspensions for sexual misconduct and steroids have been resulting in permanent bans uh, and long-term suspensions for some individuals. I mean, recently, an independent arbitrator reduced Trevor Bauer's initial 324-game suspension down to 194 for violating Major League Baseball's domestic violence policy. The arbitrator essentially gave Bauer credit for time served on the MLB's restricted list in the second half of 2021, and he was going to be docked pay through the first 50 games of the 2023 season. Um, So all I'm saying is that these varying standards of reinstatement and banning raise questions about the fairness and consistency of MLB's uh, discipline process. So you have the reinstatement of individuals like Capilella and Steinbrenner, and then you've got long-term suspensions and bannings of Rose, Jackson, and even Bauer, right? Clearly, it highlights a need for a more clear and uniform standard for who gets reinstated, who actually has to serve a ban. Is the language of banning someone even appropriate? Should it just be an indefinite removal or something? Because to me, the language, when you say you're banning someone, it's like the P. Rose. You're just not allowed to come back and... Even in Pete Rose's case, they even gave him a shot to come back. They rolled him out for that all-star game in Cincinnati. When, uh, I mean, you can't tell the story of the game without Pete Rose. But he just continually lied and then tried to make money off his books. So that was his own fault. But again, despite the questions and concerns, you still need a clear and concise standard, I think. And so the fact remains that MLB has the authority to make these decisions as they see fit. And so it's up to the commissioner and the league to determine the appropriate level of punishment for any of the violations and to ensure that the process is transparent and consistent. Is it always that way? No. But it's important to note that in the case of John Capilello, MLB cited that his contrition and the steps he took, quote, the steps he took in response to this matter, end quote, as factors in their decisions to reinstate him. What those were, couldn't find him. They're not going to tell us. I guess that's their right. Uh, but he was contrite. So, again, where P. Rose wasn't. Although it's hard to believe that Steinbrenner was contrite when he got banned. But anyway, he was that kind of personality. Uh, so... It just suggests that the league values certain individuals more than others, especially if you, whether you fake it or not, if you're any kind of contrite, you have a chance to get back in the league. So, John Capilella, 
has been reinstated. Not that he's been rehired by the Braves or has joined another organization, but he is now being reinstated back into the league. So it's only a matter of time before he gets another job. Let's just put it that way. All right, and lastly, we're in this segment, we're going to look at the impact of changing the dimensions of a ballpark, a field, what impact that has on the entire organization, the city, and what better example than to use Comerica Park, who has just announced that they're going to be moving the dimensions of their field to accommodate for more offense. We'll see if it helps. All right, so Comerica Park was open in 2000, uh, and it was probably the largest outfield aside from probably Coors Field at the time, because Coors dead center was 415. You had that nastiness in Houston when they first built Minute Maid Park, that little hill they had out there. Not sure how long that was, so that might have been number two or three. So there was Comerica Park, Coors, and Minute Maid had the biggest outfields. Um, oh, the biggest outfield dimensions. And so it was significantly impacting who the Tigers would bring in, how they were going to construct their roster. They were, looked like they were going to play more small ball, more gap-to-gap hitting, right? try to get more speed, got to focus on more defense. Again, it's not that the Tigers had bad teams. Again, remember, at one point, they had a team with Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, Miguel Cabrera. You would kill for those three in their prime. They had them, and they always had nice pieces around them, just couldn't get over the hump. I mean, Cleveland Guardians fans know about that. I mean, look at your 90s team, a venerable venerable all-star lineup every single season and could not get over the hump. Sad days. Uh, for starters, when we look at Comerica Park, the large dimensions have made it more challenging for heart, for hitters to hit home runs. So again, they've had to focus on players who were going to have a high batting average, good eye at the plates, which is probably why they brought in Javi Baez, uh, Almago. As much as I'm not a fan of him personally, can't deny his talent. Um, so again, their spacious outfield always lended for more defense. Uh, second, it also changes... It's also going to impact team strategy, the tactics that are used during the game. You're going to use more small ball tactics rather than trying to crush it end of games, or you're trying to pull it down the lines more so than hit the gaps. Uh, And also, finally, it has financial implications, both for the organization and its players. Uh, For example, changes to players' salaries can revolt can result from changes in their performance and values to the team. If you bring in a prolific power hitter, he comes to America and his home run numbers go down. How's that going to affect his contract going forward or his willingness to even come and play in America in the first place if he's a free agent? All right, if I'm looking, for example, if I'm a Jose Abreu who just uh, left the White Sox, I probably wouldn't consider Comerica Park. I would probably want to consider somewhere like Cincinnati or Philly or somewhere like that, more smaller, a smaller field. Better chance of hitting home runs if that's what my game is focused on. So I can see why they wanted to switch it up and, and bring in more offense. And, and the game is lending itself that way as well. And let's not forget the financial implications it's going to have on the city as well. We rarely think of that as fans, 
But every decision made by ownership affects tons of people within the city. So if we take a look at the Detroit Tigers, again, if they're a successful baseball team, that team is going to bring in more tourists. People are going to travel to see their team play against the Tigers or come from a little bit further out in Michigan to see their teams. Right? They're going to spend money on local hotels, restaurants, other businesses that may or may not even be related to baseball. Right? This is going to result in an increase in tax revenue for the city. Right, which can be used to support public services, improve infrastructure, um, and, and it's also going to have, and conversely, if the team is not doing well, it's going to bring in less people to the city. It's going to be less spending, less tax revenue coming in. I mean, look at Detroit when they were winners. When the Red Wings were winning a lot, that city was thriving. Red Wings haven't won in a long time. And, you know, look at the state of Detroit these days. There's other factors that go into it as well. But strictly speaking, sports and baseball, you can see the impact that these changes have. So let me give you some hard numbers. Uh, there was a study done by the Sports Business Journal that found that each major league game generates approximately $5 million in local economic activity. So over the course of a season, that adds up to hundreds of millions of dollars in local spending and tax revenue. Specifically, a study by the University of Michigan found that the Detroit Tigers generated approximately $45 million in local economic activity during the 2013 season. This includes spending by fans, players, and their families on hotels, restaurants, other local businesses. So consider the negative impact of team performance if the number of fans attending your games decreases by 10%, that could result in a decline of $4.5 million in local spending and tax revenue. Additionally, if changes to the park result in team strategy or roster construction being altered, it has financial implications. For example, if a player's annual spending in the local economy decreases by $100,000, this could result in a decline of $10 million in local spending and tax revenue over the course of a season, depending on a player's contract and how much they may or may not have been making, depending on their performance on the field. Right? So I believe that fans have a right to hold management accountable for putting a winning product on the field. I'm going to give you a few reasons why. Fans invest time and money into the team. Right, you spend countless hours watching the games, traveling to the stadium, purchasing team merchandise. In return, you want to see a quality product. If management fails to put a winning team on the field, fans are going to feel as if their money is being wasted and they're not going to show up to the ballpark and it's going to hurt the city. The success of the team can impact the community. Right? A successful baseball team brings a sense of pride and excitement. It can also drive local spending it's going to create jobs while a losing team is going to have the opposite effect right so fans have a right to expect management to do everything in its power to put a winning product on the field if you're expecting the fans to be the lifeblood of your team of your sport and baseball like all other sports relies on fans for support right for purchasing tickets to concessions all that stuff and i think that the detroit tigers have failed their city failed their city the last 10 maybe 12 years specifically right and I'm, I'm gonna give you some numbers on their team performance from 2010 to 2021 
So even though the fans have been loyal, the team has been inconsistent. Right. The team has had a losing record in six of those years, including three consecutive losing seasons from 2015 and 2017. Fans still keep coming. When the team was in its good years, when they made it to the World Series, the city thrived. But again, looking at the reports, Tigers have seen a decline in attendance over the last 10 years. From 2010 to 2021, which they experienced both successful and unsuccessful seasons. In 2010, Tigers averaged an attendance of 37,957 fans per game. While in 2021, it has declined to an average of 24,343 fans per game. So that's roughly a decline of 35% over the last 10 years of having so many losing seasons and now really putting a competitive product on the field. And also asking the city to dish over a bunch of money to even build Comerica Park, which I'll get there in a second. But assuming an average ticket price is $30, the decline in attendance from 2010 to 2021 represents a loss of about 13,614 fans per game. And over the course of an 81-game home season, it equates to roughly a million one hundred one two hundred four one million one hundred one thousand two hundred fourteen fans. So if you multiply the decline in attendance by the average ticket price of thirty dollars, you can estimate that the Tigers have approximately lost thirty-three million dollars in revenue from ticket sales alone, which does not take into account the loss of revenue from concessions merchandise, sponsorships, and the actual impact of the organization's finances could be significantly higher. And now keep in mind, Comerica Park was built with a combination of public and private funding. And so according to public information, Comerica Park cost $300 million to build and 70 million of that was funded by the city of Detroit and other public entities. The city of Detroit, which is in a state of crisis and its education, its public health, found a way to have $70 million to fund this stadium. And it came in the form of tax-exempt bonds issued by the city, which was used to pay for infrastructure improvements, site preparation, and other costs that are associated with it. And it's worth noting that the public funds is usually a controversial issue. Um, Because again, you could have allocated some of that money for schools, roads, safety, hospitals, but then the other argument is it creates jobs, there's tourism, an increase in tax revenue, but if you're losing that much money, is there really the payoff for the city in the end? Maybe it should be privately funded all the way through, because again, you're asking the city to dish out $70 million. you're asking the fans to dish out their hard-earned money, and for all intents and purposes, it's, it would seem to the average fan that the Tigers are not trying to put a winning product on the field, which is why it's so important to highlight stories like this, the Artie Moreno sale, because their decisions impact people far greater than we would even know, down to the local nurse, the school that your kid goes to, all of it. So, Hopefully, Tiger fans will keep Tigers feet to the fire and 
put a winning product on the field for the sake of us all. Well, it's time for In the Dugout. Today we're taking a look at the Colorado Rockies, who haven't been a 500 team since 2018. This is the team that had the Blake Street Bombers, Larry Walker, Dante Bruchette, Vinny Castilla, Andres Calarraga. This is the team that had Dexter Fowler running around the outfield. This is a team that's had Nolan Arenado, Troy Tulowitzki. Chris Bryan is there now. But of course, they're in a division with the LA Dodgers, the San Diego Padres, who are unafraid to spend money. And oh wait, the San Francisco Giants are always lurking. <clears throat> I don't know how this team ever expects to keep up, but have no fear, Rockies fan. Your owner is on it. In an event last month, he was asked by the media, the Denver Post, he said, you know, speaking about the uh, current state of things, that puts a lot of pressure on us, quote, he says. But it's not just the Padres, it's the Mets, it's the Phillies. This has been an interesting year. Quote, what the Padres are doing, I don't 100% agree with. Though I know our fans probably agree with it. We'll see how it works out. Period. I look at the Padres, and they have a really talented team. But they have some holes, too. They've got three, maybe four starting pitchers. And then they're sort of like us. They have Joe Musgrave, Blake Snell, you Darvish. So I don't know. They have spent a lot of money, and they will spend a lot more if they want to keep outfielder Juan Soto. But it does put a lot of pressure on you. Yes, it does. With the L.A. Dodgers, San Francisco Giants running around the division over the last few years, the Padres are acquiring a load of talent, and the Arizona Diamondbacks building potential stars from the ground up. Munford reassures the fans in the audience of Colorado. He reassured fans that Colorado can play 500 ball. Whoa, folks, 500 ball. We have a lot of talent, he says. Like, a lot of good things are going to happen, and I think they're going to start happening this year. I think we can play 500 ball, he says. I mean, aim for the stars, why don't you? I, I'm worried that the Padres are spending too much money. I know the fans probably like it, but we're not going to do that. We're going to play 500 ball this year. You might as well just throw in the towel. What is even the point of showing up this year? That is not what you ever want to hear from your owner. You want to hear, hey, we're going to put out our best effort. We think we got a good group of guys this year. We got a tough division, but we're going to play hard every week and we're just glad the fans are going to come out and we're looking forward to making the playoffs this year. No, he said we're going to play a 500 ball. Talk about keeping it mediocre. If, if anything from the last segment rang true, Colorado is going to lose a lot of money when it's concerning the Rockies. Jeez. Well, that was this segment of In the Dugout. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Legends of the Diamond. And it is a true honor to be able to bring to you an interview with Effa Manley, courtesy of the Nunn Center of the University of Kentucky. Thank you very much for releasing us this audio interview of Effa Manley. She was the pioneering woman who shattered barriers and made history in the world of baseball. 
Effa Manley was a trailblazer who, along with her husband Abe Manley, owned and operated the Newark Eagles of the Negro National League from 1936 to 1948. She was the first and only woman to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame as a co-owner of a team, and her impact on the sport of baseball continues to be felt today. Effa Manley was a woman ahead of her time who fought tirelessly for the rights of players and the recognition of the Negro Leagues. She was a businesswoman, a civil rights activist, and a fierce advocate for her team and her players. Effa Manley's legacy lives on, and it's a privilege to bring you this interview, to hear from her incredible life and the impact she had on the sport of baseball. man out of friendly lizard given me and he took them away um mrs manley we were talking earlier when we first when i first came into chat with you about um how you became interested in baseball of course it had a lot to do with your husband can you sort of expound upon that well of uh, my husband was the um, the one who really became interested in the baseball. I knew nothing at all about baseball at that time. And Abe just decided he wanted to see Negro baseball organized. There were 12 Negro baseball teams operating all over the country, depending entirely on booking agents. And they were magnificent teams. Homestead Grays, Kansas and Moss, Birmingham Black Baron, Chicago American Giants, all great teams that continued to operate until the baseball was finally wrecked. So Abe was interested enough to want to see them organized into a league. And he got five of the teams in the East to go along with him and set up the Negro National League on condition that he would operate a team out of Brooklyn Ebbets Field, the Dodgers' home park, and the Dodgers uh, people were very nice about renting us the place on no flat rate, just the percentage of whatever we drew in at the gate, which was very nice, because if they demanded a certain amount, we might. So um, this, uh, this Negro National League, that's how it was born. Now this I'm speaking about is a permanent Negro National League. There had been a man in 1920, Rube Foster, who was really the first Negro who tried to organize Negro baseball. And the league that he set up at that time, he named the National League, but it didn't last too long. And there, uh, he definitely deserves a lot of credit, though, for even trying it, but that happened. So Abe got these... Uh, five teams to go along with. They each gave him two players and he was able to get the rest of the players together and that's how the Newark Eagles were born. And we drew so poorly in Brooklyn that year that the next year we moved to Newark. Now I, meant to, I should have said that's how the Brooklyn Eagles were born. But the next year we moved to Newark and we stayed there for the rest of the time, 1945. And you don't want to know at this time why we quit do you no no i think i think we can cover that um a little later on mm -hmm. um we also talked a little bit about why your husband 
owned the team. I mean, he just became interested quite suddenly. Well, he was always a baseball fan. In fact, he told me that he used to play baseball. I couldn't picture him, but he told me he used to play, and he was a definite baseball fan, one of those real rabid ones, you know, and particularly Negro baseball. He had always followed the uh, Negro baseball team. And they in Philadelphia, they had a team that I never saw, of course, it was before my time, but I've heard so much about it. It must have been one of the greatest teams that was ever assembled called the Hilldales. Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear of him? Yes, I have. And, of course, that's where Abe lived. And he used to, he knew all the Hilldale players. And I understand they were something. Well, you know, Negroes are great athletes. That's one of the fields that they excel in. They're definitely magnificent athletes. Any any athlete field they've ever competed in, they've always been, you know, cinder path, prize ring, and football, basketball, everything. So there's no reason why they shouldn't be great baseball players. What what year did your husband die? He died in 1952. In 1952. Mm -hmm. December now, the 9th. You had then. A great deal to do with the ball club as far as its operation is concerned, and how did this come about? I mean, well, when he he, he the first year we had trained in Jacksonville, Florida. He always took the team south for training. He he went into it head first with his mind made up to spend any amount of money he had to, and uh, he started writing me back, asking me to do the different things. There were oh, many little things that he had to have uh, taken care of. That I suppose if we had been operating a long time and had some established healthy little turnovers, but little by little, I found myself doing more and more, and I finally just ended up completely involved. And no question that that my final title after a very short time was business manager and that's what I did. I drew up the schedules, bought the equipment, We and we only used the finest equipment. Our uniforms were manufactured by the same people that made them for the majors. And there were, had, you had to appoint, arrange for the ball players' hotel accommodations before they left on a trip. And there were an awful lot of little things like that that I took care of. I had an office secretary, and, the, and this is another wonderful thing that happened to me, that we had a bus driver and a road secretary and an office secretary that stayed with us the whole 14 years, although we didn't pay them in the wintertime. Uh, Carrie Jacobs was the office secretary, and she managed to exist during the winter. <laughs> Uh, Edison Thomas, no matter who he was working for, the bus driver, as soon as the baseball season rolled and he left him to come back to the Eagles and drive the bus. And we were extremely fortunate. The road secretary, Eric Illich, he traveled with the Renaissance basketball team all winter. He was a, That was a great basketball team. Did you ever hear them? No, I haven't. Well, that, that was in the time when there was only one Negro basketball team, the Renaissance, and they were it. And they had all the greatest players owned by a man in Holland named Bob Douglas. And Eric was their road secretary in the winter, and he came to us in the summer. So the whole 14 years, we had this beautiful setup with the help, which was wonderful. <laughs> had you ever had any sort of managerial experience before? No. No? No. No. I had finished Wooden Penn High School, and that's as far as it. 
And then I went to work, uh, I studied millinery. Mm -hmm. I went that time millinery was different from today. It took your yes. whole week to make a hat. You had to make the frame and <laughs> what have you. So that was, no, I had absolutely done. But I, I, I caught on very quickly with the baseball. Well, I saw how deeply involved my husband was, and he, he was, to him, it was just everything. You know, he, I told you that he had to uh, retire from his real estate business. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so we're, he was no doubt looking for something to do, and this was something that just caught his fancy. I'm involved in something right now, 99% is because I believe it will please Abe, so I'll tell you as we go on. Okay. Right um, what was it like for you to run a ball club? It must have been a very exciting type of uh, well, existence. Well, I think that's one reason I'm so lazy now. <laughs> it was a constant, you were traveling for all the time. Right. Every time I looked, I was on a plane going here or there, went to all the meetings, of course, you know that. Now, in the beginning, the men were a little bit, I believe, disturbed that this woman entering the picture. But not long. They they received me very nicely, and then they saw how important I was to Abe, you know, and of course everybody was crazy about him. His nickname, one of the Negro newspaper men, Dan Burley in New York, nicknamed him Honest Abe, and that was his name. He was just a, a, a very well-liked person. And um, so the, the, the man accepted me, and of course, it was just one of those things when I, I found myself completely involved, and I enjoyed it. I, I, I liked it. It was a lot of work, though. It wasn't. It wasn't by any means a thing that uh, just a figurehead job where he, you know, just right. the name. There was really work to do. And as I said, always before they left on a trip, I had arranged for their hotel accommodations in every city they were going. You know, had notified the people and gotten their response and now Eric, uh, Abe went with them on every trip. He, it was really something he loved, but he didn't take care of any of the business on the road. This fellow, Eric Illich, mm -hmm. took care of everything. He paid the bills, he handled the money, he gave the boys their eating money and everything that was done uh, so far as the business was concerned, Eric did. Mm -hmm. So Abe was just, he turned the business over to other people, <laughs> so he didn't have to be bothered. <laughs> did, did you have a reputation for being sometimes somewhat outspoken as far as he wanted something? Uh... No, I don't think, I don't think I ever was too net. After Mr. Ricky did what he did was when I really started talking a little bit. I mean, when, when, now when he took, you know, he took those three Negro ball players on Negro baseball and didn't give us five cents or say thank you, Racky Robinson, Roy Condonella, and Don Newcomb. Plus, he took Newcomb from me, so I know what I'm talking about. And we couldn't protest. The fans would have never forgiven us. Plus, it would have been wrong to prevent them from going to the majors. But I told you, I had tried to get the majors to take us as farm teams, but they still weren't, didn't want the Negro ball players. And you can see why. Um, 
their their excuse was the Negroes weren't good enough. So they've only gone in the majors and proceeded to break all records. Of <laughs> course, right. I don't think they'll ever break. There's one record I don't think they'll ever be broken. You have any idea what that is? Not really. DiMaggio's consecutive <laughs> game hitting streak. The 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 pitchers are too sophisticated now. You know they've got these wonderful bullpens ready to go in, and, right. and I doubt that anybody will hit in fifty six straight games. The only yeah. other one I could think of would be Gehrig's record of consecutive games played. But uh, oh, I think that's been broken. Has that been broken? I think so. Yeah, I think that's been broken. But uh, uh, was it Hornsby? Um, um, but uh, but back to Maggio consecutive hitting streak. I don't think anybody will hit that, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> you mentioned spring training in Florida. Did you train down there every Always. Every always went to, except for, of course, the year that the major, the um, uh, government wouldn't let the teams go south. You mm -hmm. know, you had, it was, I think it was the gasoline shortage, right. I believe, right. I don't know what it was, but anyway, that's when the year that the uh, the Dodgers trained up at Bear Mountain. And that's when the whole thing started. Now, mm -hmm. now you mentioned that before the organization of the um, two leagues, that primarily the Negro ball clubs were um, working through booking agents. Oh, definitely, completely. Now, after the formation. Entirely, plus themselves, they used to get together once in a while and arrange promotions for themselves, you know. Now, this year that Abe got these five teams to go along with him out east, the next year, the Western teams got together and formed the Negro American League, mm -hmm. and that was Dr. Martin was responsible for that. There were three brothers, and they were all, they had the title doctor, I don't think they were medical doctors, I believe one was a dentist and one had a drugstore, and anyway, Dr. Martin formed the, got the Western teams to get together and formed the Negro American League. So from then on, until Mr. Ricky's raid, we operated. We we drew up our schedules. We played the map. We played our World Series. We played our East-West All-Star Game, always in Comiskey Park, Chicago. Mm -hmm. I think that was the Dr. Martin kind of had a little influence on that. Some <laughs> some some got a little something extra in uh. some way, but the, 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 so it was a. a and the year, and we won the pennant in '46. Boy, did we have a ball club in 1946! I don't believe any ball club in the country could have beaten us. We really had some team. This boy Monty Irvin was on it, and Larry Doby, who went mm -hmm. to Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Now Ricky had taken Newcomb the year before, so Newcomb wasn't on our pennant-winning team. But we had a third baseman, Pat Patterson. Oh, we had some magnificent ball players. Um, breaks my heart to see those fellows think that. That's why I'm pleading so hard now for this plaque with just their name, you know. Sure, I, uh, sure. So, and I'm, I'm, this last letter I received from Mr. Um, Stack, the president, he said he was in sympathy with the, uh, the request for a plaque and was going to see what he could do or something. I'm worried for that effect. If you're interested, I'll read it to you. Yes, I'd like to see it. Mm -hmm. um, did you also do some barnstorming? Oh, definitely. Now, our, our league schedule was mainly weekends mm -hmm. and one game in the middle of the week. How many games did you play in a season? I know it varied from season to season, but approximately how, how many? How many what? 
how many regular league games did you play? Oh, we played, I think the, the regular league game was 16. 16. Uh-huh. And then how many games would you estimate you played during a year? Oh, well, now that's another thing. In, in, our, in the case of my Eagles, that barnstorming was another thing that just depended on the booking agent. Mm -hmm. And Abe had entered right into the picture just fussing about the booking agent. He said the booking should be done by the league itself. They should not need any outside agent. And that was one time I disagreed with him, but not to any great extent. I said those men had the know-how and the setup and all, and I thought we should go along with it. Because I, I could see that we were going to cost us money. But Abe was determined that no, that they should do its own booking. As a result, it meant that many times we just were idle. The Eagles, we put in the schedule, they always played out the schedule. There was never any confusion about that. The teams would win, but, but there were many times when the other teams would be playing somewhere, many times big promotions that the Eagles weren't in it. So that's how we come to, uh, how he come to spend so much money. He's going to spend it. He actually spent $100,000, I mean, lost that mm -hmm. in a, in operating the team. Because Is that of, over the 14-year period? The, uh, yes, because the 1st and 15th of every month, that all players checked. So that was another job that I personally wanted to handle. Each ball player's paycheck was different. They all had not only different salaries, but different dependents. This one would have none, this one would have two, and what have you. So that was a job that I didn't turn over to Miss Jacobs. I did that myself. What are we talking about as far as salaries are concerned, let's say in the 40s? Well, an, a good salary was $500. That wasn't bad. It would probably be a couple thousand a day, you know. I mean, $500 a month. A month, a month, a month right. yes, a month. And that was one of our good, our uh, top salaries. And you mm -hmm. paid how many months out of the year? Let me see. We started in April in the spring training, and we played up until late September. So we May, June, July, August, and May. I'll say five months. How about a how about a salary for, for a, a fellow just coming on the team, a rookie? Well, that was uh, that was something that I didn't decide. That was one of Abe's jobs. It varied uh, according to yes, who you were trying to attract to and so on. How he was attracted. Now, he, he, was, he was very fortunate in so far as people recommending ball players to him. We were, of course, had no scouts, no paid scouts. But anytime now, that boy Larry Doby, a friend of Abe's had seen Doby. He played in Patterson That's High Jersey, School. Right. You know, he was a big star there. Somebody wrote Abe about a boy that was pitching down in Lakeland, Florida. Abe went all the way down there to see him and liked him very much and brought him back. And he was a beautiful left-hand pitcher. I've often wondered what happened to Jimmy. Very small. And when Abe showed up within the team, the ball players all thought, oh, how can that little man be anything kind of a ball player? But he was quite a pitcher. And as I said, I've often wondered what in the world might have happened to Jimmy. He's one of those I lost complete contact with. But um, that was the way, that was a Abe's job. And if he, if he felt a fellow was worth this much or that much, there's one ball player out here now working in the post office. In fact, he's trying to set up a business, uh, um, age, um, 
talent agency and uh, he played first base for us for a short time and he was recommended quite a star in his high school up in in Connecticut I believe it was and uh, he calls me frequently we have a, a friend man who's just saying well, we have a very fine friendly relationship and uh, but Abe set the salary. He he knew how much they he felt they were worth, you know, to the team. That that wasn't in my department at all. How many players did you have on the roster? We always had at least sixteen and sometimes eighteen. Mm -hmm. I was according to uh, now. There's there's a picture. Of, let me see that championship team. One ball player wasn't there the day that picture was taken, and I don't think we'd have won the pennant without him, Pat Patterson, the third baseman. And then that team, I think there, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. There's a bat boy, there's one of them, and Pat wasn't there. So on, on that team, I guess there might have been 16 men. Did you actually have contracts with? The players that were the Every bull player who ever played for the Eagles had a signed, legitimate contract. Yes. There was never any just, uh, uh, such thing as playing just uh, on that. Jackie Robinson said all he had was a handshake. Well, that wasn't true of the Eagles. And I don't think it was true of most of the teams. I think uh, that was one of our league rules, and I think most of the teams lived up to it. Yes, we had definite, legitimate legal contracts. Did you travel with the team? No, never. One trip, one time they were going to play an important game in Trenton, New Jersey, and I wanted to see the game, and it would have been very hard to get there any other way except if I'd driven, so I went in the bus with them, and that was the one and only time in the 14 years, and I definitely curbed their style. Abe <laughs> said they liked to sing and joke and all everything in the bus, and I was definitely out of place, so that was the only trip I ever made. Trenton, New Jersey wasn't too far from Newark, you know, where we were. And you, I just, you were living in Newark? Yeah, we were living in Newark. And How I long just, did you live there? Let me see, we moved, uh, Abe and I married in 32, and he went in the business in 33. I guess we moved to Newark in 33, and I lived there till Abe died. We were married 20 years, so we were there. And then you moved, moved back to Newark? No, I moved from New back to my hometown, Philadelphia. And uh, then I came out here to marry an old boyfriend. Stupid. I've been married twice and they died. Both of them very stupid. <laughs> this shouldn't be on the record. <laughs> very stupid marriages. They're both dead now, so they they won't know I'm talking about them. Okay. And they both the funniest thing. They played the piano and sang for a living. And I've always been weak for music. <laughs> music has been something that has always kind of. Still, so the, the records just stay around all the. Uh, well, a lawyer friend of mine came out to visit a few years ago, and he greeted me at the door with this Austin Norris is his name in Philadelphia. Effa, are you ready to settle for records yet? <laughs> I said, Yes, Austin, I'm ready to settle for Because <laughs> those two marriages was my own private entertainment was. And then, of course, I had lived in a bigger place than where I had a piano and yes, all. Sure. When I moved here, I sold the piano and everything. Sure. So, um, 
What um, were the road conditions like for the ballplayers? I'm sure that since you didn't travel with them, that you heard a lot of stories. I'm sure. Abe traveled with them mm -hmm. and stayed with them every place they played. They stayed, and I know that they're that any that those tales you hear about how bad conditions were were not true. Now there were several occasions when I wanted to see the team. I didn't travel with them to the town. But I would go, I would drive myself. And now Philadelphia wasn't too far away and I used to any time go to Philadelphia. And I always stayed right at the colored hotel with the teams. And Abe always stayed with them. He never, uh, not a, didn't even go with friends or anything. He stayed right at the ball club all day. And I, I, the, the hotels, of course, they weren't elaborate, magnificent, but to, they were clean, decent, mm -hmm. honest. Good. Now, the year that we let Cleveland have Dobie, and of course, when they won the pennant, I decided I wanted to see the team, the game, the Adobe in the World Series. So I flew out to uh, Cleveland, and I went right to the Colored Hotel. That's where we'd always stayed. And I got the lucky spread. The hotel was crowded because everybody was in town for the World Series. And I had to have that only room they had when I got there was a room with the, the bathroom and toilet down, way down the hall. And Joe Lewis happened to be staying there at the same time. And he heard about my plight and he had a suite. And he gave me his suite. And he oh went and stayed with some friends. Oh my. Yeah, we were good friends. Joe Joe started in business the same year we did. He oh, started yeah. fighting in 1935, the same year we started in the baseball. So we became good friends. So as soon as Joe heard about me with this little beat-up room way down in the bathroom way down the end of the hall, he gave me his suite of rooms. <laughs> be dark. And um. then, so it's been a it's been a pleasant. Uh, a sort of an onion, and then this this was happening during the time when women weren't involved in this sort of thing. In fact, up till the day, there's no woman actually running a baseball team. I, I imagine in many many of them employed in different categories, but they're not actually doing the kind of work I did with the team. Yeah, they are. They're they're behind the scenes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was a. Very, and then, as you say, Monty told you about me. I imagine that they were, his comments were complimentary. I don't think he had, would, could have anything to say that wasn't because of no correct. Now he was the boy. Had the Negro, had the owners of the Negro teams been asked who to break down the prejudice of the Monty, we had gotten together and talked about it. Not nothing legal or. Uh, but, what uh, year no, was this, but we had discussed it among ourselves. We saw the handwriting on the wall, you know, that we knew that it was going to come. And we had decided that if they asked us who to break down the prejudice and made money, would have been the boy. He had everything. He had now one of the things that Robinson didn't have, which of course I'm not knocking Robinson because he did a magnificent job fitting into the picture like he did, but there, uh, uh, he didn't have an arm. Monty had one of the most magnificent arms that's ever been in baseball. He, if he was playing in the outfield, it was a line drive, came right into the catcher's mitt, you know, <laughs> and nobody ever took an extra base on That was out of the question. So he was the one we had, we owners 
had agreed. But what, what year was this that you were talking into? Well, we the, the actual integration took place in 46, didn't it? So this must have been around 44 that we were doing all this. That's when Herbert was in the service. Yeah. Did you know that? Did you know that Branch Rickey approached Monty Irvin in 1945 to uh, and asked him to whether or not he was ready? Did you know that? Uh, now wait a minute, Branch Rickey. Apologizing Monty. No. <clears throat> no. And Monty, for I guess personal reasons, and I guess that he'd been through a lot in the war, said no at that time. Well, no, I I don't remember that. Of course, there were so many problems and things down. Now Mexico decided they wanted our Negro players early in the forties, and boy, they stopped. I mean, that was just it was a, it was a just a series of problems. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of the greatest of our players, Ray Danrich, the third baseman, he came to me one day with this fast. No, Mrs. Manley, I think her name was Pasquale, yes, Pasquale Brothers. Brothers right. the, Mr. Pasquale has just come and gave me this money and wants me to come to Mexico. Now, if you will give it to me, instead I won't go. And my feeling was, to begin with, I couldn't have competed with the Pasquale. They were millionaires. <laughs> they came down to bidding for the players. I'm sure they could have outbid me. We were, and there had, plus the fact that I just didn't think it was a good idea to start that. So, so I, I advised my, uh, um, uh, Danish to go, which he did. And he stayed for quite a few years down there. And... Uh, that there was another fellow that they wanted awfully bad, Pearson, our first baseman. I was willing and able to talk Pearson out of going. But the Mexico jumped on us head first. They were taking all our great players. And of course you couldn't blame the boys. They saw this big money, you know, and and uh, but most of them the thing that was in our favor in the Mexico thing situation. The ball players themselves didn't like it down there. They didn't like the food at all. That was a, uh, they, they were not happy down there. So most of them only stayed that one year. Didn't you, um, uh, didn't the league lose Satchel Page? Oh, yes. Well, Wasn't there a story behind that? that yeah, this, this probably oughtn't be on the record either. Ever. Can I leave Abe, it on? No. <laughs> I don't know whether, Abe, actually gave, uh, Satchel was playing for Gus Greenlee's team mm -hmm. at the time, and Abe actually gave Gus $5,000 for Satchel. Well, that was a whole lot of money then for a Negro ballpark. In fact, I believe it probably is the only time in the history of the game that cash was paid for a ball player. But Abe always wanted a good team. We always had a good team. and We only won the pennant in 46. We were always up there second or third. Because we had those consistent champs, the Homestead Grays. They were to black baseball, what the Yankees were to sure. white baseball. They were terrific. They, they always had a magnificent ball club. So we're in, in the case of Satchel, Abe actually gave us $5,000 for Satchel. <laughs> this, I don't know whether I'll tell you this or not. Satchel wrote me and told me he'd come to the team if I'd be his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, murder. Butch Brown was my publicity man, and I showed the letter to Butch. I said, Butch, what are you doing in case? <laughs> I was kind of cute then, too. We're talking about 40 years ago. <laughs> oh, murder. So, uh, of 
course, I didn't even answer his letter because it was one of those things. And he ended up going, to, did he go to Mexico or one of those southern countries? <laughs> so that's how, but Satchel, we actually paid for him. Abe actually gave us 5,000 cold cash dollars for Satchel. And did you get it? Did I don't you, think. Did you get your money back when, I don't he, when he went? Think, I don't think Gus gave him the money back. Now that I don't really know. But there were, of course, so far as Gus was concerned, he turned Satchel over to us. And I guess it was our job to try to get him. I suppose, of course, Satchel was so unpredictable. He was one of those that did anything. And, and you know, I heard this story about him. And I couldn't hardly believe it. So one day his team was playing in Yankee Stadium and I decided to go over and see was it true. If Satchel had two outs in the ninth inning and two strikes on the batter, he turned around and called the outfield in and they all came in and he just burned that fast ball over and that was it. The, the ball players say you can't hit what you can't see. And when he threw that fast, <laughs> and he used it, and he did it this day. I actually saw him do it. Two strikes on the batter, two outs, last thing, and he just called the outfit, and the outfit all came running in. Of course, the owners permitted it. It was amusing to the fans. I got a terrific kick out of it myself. And there, that, that fast ball of his was something. But you know, there was a ball player that all the old timers who really knew the Negro ball players. Say was a much better pitcher than Satchel. And that right there will actually conclude this segment of Legends of the Diamond. That again was Effa Manley. We'll pick it up again next week with the second part of that episode and we'll find out who she thought was better than Satchel Page. Well folks, that about does it for this episode. That about does it for me. Uh, <clears throat> thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Remember to like follow subscribe if you're watching on youtube thank you for watching there ding the little bell for notifications for each week's episode if you're on spotify don't forget to hit the auto download hit the plus symbol this podcast can also be found on apple podcasts and anywhere else podcasts are found until next week signing off <laughs>